Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. I'm Arlene Bonham for John Oakley. Here is what's on the podcast today for August 5th, 2020. Is it gas or charcoal? We throw down the gauntlet with the barbecue whisper, Meathead Goldwyn. The tale of two towns longing to be one. We hear from the mayor of a BC town on the Alaskan border. A defense tech journalist in New Mexico joins us about the images of a mushroom cloud, why it makes us think nuclear, and what historically we can learn about this blast from Canada. Okay, it's not geopolitical relations. It is not economic uncertainty. It is not to mask or not to mask, but it is one of the oldest summer arguments that can be found gas grill versus charcoal i am completely transformed it's been a long time since i've owned a charcoal grill and by happenstance from a malfunctioning gas barbecue and heading out to buy barbecue if you tried we were talking about everybody going camping you can't that's how i knew you couldn't buy a barbecue and a lot of them the the, the few that were left were charcoal friend offers a little charcoal barbecue Try it. Go back in time. Get in the briquettes and throw a steak on there. And unbelievable. And then it was a hamburger. One thing after another. And I don't think I can go back. The flavor of charcoal. I'm just wondering, I don't know, is, 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 would the pandemic change this? Are, 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 is, is our mind in a different place now? We keep talking about it. We heard Nick Nano saying, people are saying, hey, maybe I'll go back to the land. I'm going back to charcoal. So we thought we'd take it, take it out there and really get to the bottom of it. And we found the perfect guest. His name is Meathead Goldwyn, joining us live, author of the New York Times bestseller, Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. Meathead, thank you for joining us. Oh, nice of you to ask me on for this topic. Down here in the States, it usually that debate usually ends in gunplay. <laughs> well, we have different gun laws up here, Meathead, and this is over the radio, so I think we're going to get along just fine. Meathead, you heard what I said. Have you met people like me before? They've gone back to charcoal, and they say they will never return to that gas grill again. The flavor. Where do you, where do you sit on this? Well, there is a difference, but it's not exactly where you think it is. It's not so much the flavor of the charcoal. It's the temperature. There's three different kinds of energy inside of a grill. There's the energy that's stored in the metal. That's conduction when you put the meat on top Mm -hmm. of the grill grates. There's convection air flow. That's warm air. That is what most of the cooking we do on a grill is. And then there's infrared radiation, and that's when you put meat directly above flame or glowing coals or gas burners. And the thing about gas is most gas grills don't pack the wallop that charcoal packs. 
more infrared radiation. And if you want a great sear on a steak or a burger, you want it that beautiful mahogany brown color, and it's a chemical reaction called the Maillard reaction. It's, it's where the proteins and the amino acids and the sugars change their structure, and they make that brown crust that we all love. It's better with charcoal because it has more energy. It's not so much the smoke or anything else. Now, charcoal does make a little bit of smoke, but when it's fully lit, if you notice, when you first light the charcoal, it makes a There's lot smoke, of smoke. And then there is no smoke. It is just no smoke it is all. just red. Let me ask you, based on that size, this Maillard, you're saying it's better on, because of the heat of the charcoal, is it impossible on a gas grill to that degree? Or is it technique? No, it's it's possible, but it has to do with how much energy, and that's not necessarily measured in BTUs, because the distance from the um, food to the flame is also involved. Um, so it's a complicated calculation. A lot of the new gas grills, the Napoleon, which is made mm-hmm. up in Canada, has a side burner that is an infrared burner that is just on the, this is the Model 500. It's just incredibly hot. It's like steakhouse hot. You can get fantastic, as good as charcoal, as good as the steakhouse, with a good infrared burner that packs a lot of energy. Um, you can't, I mean, think about it. All of your favorite steakhouses, you go out there and you come home and say, why can't mm-hmm. I cook steak like this? Mm-hmm. They're all cooking with gas. None really? of them have charcoal. They all really? cook with gas. It's just that they have But they got souped up. Burners. Yeah, yeah they got souped up burners. But, yeah. but it, you know, when I went back to the charcoal as well, though, and you talked about the smoke, there is a flavor there. And I'm going to be just totally honest. I'm, I wouldn't get that flavor in a steakhouse. I would not. There is a flavor from the charcoal, and a lot of it, of course, has to do with what kind of charcoal you're using. Let's not get that started, because we'll be here for an hour. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I mean, charcoal really is best used for energy. If you want flavor from smoke, you get it best from wood. And so a hunk of wood tossed on your gas grill or your charcoal grill will create that really fragrant, seductive wood flavor. And that's But that's not just really any ex- kind of wood, though. You know, I was running around and we, I had some hunks of poplar that had come down and they were nicely aged. And I thought, oh, maybe mm-hmm. I'll throw it on. And then I look it up. No, don't put poplar. Apparently it's... You want hardwood, <laughs> nutwood, or fruit wood. Okay. A very tight grain wood. Um, pine and um, things of that sort, they have a lot of resin in it, which can give an mm. off flavor. But the hardwoods, nutwoods, and fruitwoods are the best. Oak, um, cherry, hickory, um, and they make the best all-around flavors. A lot of people obsess over which wood to use. You know, there's not a huge difference. Um, uh, Pig nut hickory or shag bark hickory. I mean, you don't know. And the bag you buy, you don't know for sure what's in there. Don't obsess over the wood. Yeah. Here's another important one. All your barbecue books say soak the wood. Mm-hmm. You don't have to soak the wood. That's, good That's an know. old husband's tale. Okay. It's a myth. Ah, I love wood, that. Uh, hardwood doesn't absorb water. That's why they build boats out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people have figured this out. I'm going to ask you something. I mean, this is your business. Can you tell something about somebody, whether they're charcoal or whether 
they are gas. Is there a different kind of a personality? <laughs> is it oh, like Stones dear, and dear, Beatles? Dear. Would you say? Um, I, I'll tell you. Um, most of the people whom I know who are really into outdoor cooking mm-hmm. have both, because you really? just cannot yeah. beat the convenience, the ease. You you come home after a hard day of work, yeah. and you just on your way into the kitchen, you flick the dial on the gas yeah. grill, and 15 minutes later you're cooking. But there's no cleanup. There's no ash. And if you've got a good um, gas grill with an infrared burner, you can make fantastic steaks and burgers. But with a get, with a charcoal grill, there's a little bit of the startup process, the ritual. Yeah, but that's part of it, though, Meathead. Yes, I mean, the flames. I mean, you're a guy. Men love fire. <laughs> they, <laughs> I don't know. that Men feel well, that they're doing what way more after. And grills, you know? They do. I mean, I don't want to get sexist here. However, this is the place to go, I think, if you're going to get sexist, get in those grills. I've actually tried to figure this one out, and (laughs) we can't discuss it on air. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. What what happens on the grill stays in the grill. Okay, but it is part of it, isn't it, with a charcoal grill? I mean, you do the flaming, you get the flames going, you've got that. I mean, look, during the pandemic, all we hear is people are thinking, I want to go camping, I want to get out in nature. Maybe they just need to buy a charcoal grill grill meet him and they would get all that kind of inexpensive ones on i can get a better sear on a steak on a $30 hibachi or a $20 disposable grill, charcoal grill, right? Um, than I can on most gas grills. There you've said it. I began with that and you've come around to my way of thinking here. Oh, oh! I look at I have I have everything. I mean, <laughs> we haven't even talked about pellet grills yet. Pellet smokers. No, the but they're out there. Pellet. I saw them. That they were. Uh, let me just ask you too. Uh, it, just getting. It's connected to grill. Uh, a cast iron frying pan. I, I'll be honest with you. I'd rather have a steak and butter on a cast iron frying pan, really searing, screaming hot, than a gas grill. Well, you know, we talked about the three different kinds of energy. Oh, I know why. And that's conduction. You have that mm-hmm. cast iron pan, and it just packs energy. That cast iron pan soaks it up, and you put that um, steak in there, and you're going to get that absolutely perfect, gorgeous, um, dark brown mahogany crust on it. Um, that is the most energy you can get. The second most energy is infrared radiation, and then warm convection airflow is the least. Um, so, yeah, that cast iron pan is a great way to get a great sear. And if you've got a gas grill and you're mm-hmm. just not getting that all-round sear, and by the way, grill marks just don't cut it because grill marks are just little stripes of yeah. Maillard reaction. In between those stripes is that tan, unfulfilled potential oh. where flavor just hasn't developed. If you want a good <laughs> all-over sear, that's the way to do it. Get your cast iron pan, throw it on your gas grill. It will store enough energy to sear it fantastic. Oh, so let you me can ask you, how did you, you, how you, did can, you get into you this? Grill on your gas grill, throw your wood chunks on there, get your wood flavor, get it almost done, and when it's not quite done yet, you throw it in the cast iron pan, and bam, you're ready to go. Wow, I wanted a tip, and you're giving us a tip here. How did you get into this? How did you stumble? Clearly your mother didn't name you Meathead when she saw you in the delivery room. <laughs> no, she didn't, but my dad did. 
Um, I learned to grill from my dad. He was always a griller out back, and I used to hang out with him. His specialty was flank steak, and uh, you know he might have let me have a sip of beer every now and then. That might have helped get me interested. And I started grilling alongside of him when I was a boy. And when I was in college, uh, there was a TV show that uh, called Ar- uh, Archie Bunker that uh, was very popular. And one of the we've heard of it up here. Named, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the characters was named Meathead. Yeah, and we know. Dad would call me Meathead. And so it just kind of stuck. Um, but I've been into it ever since. I mean, I was the guy that everybody turned to to cook when I was in college. So it made you popular. Do women like men who can grill? And, and, and let's reverse it. Do men like women who can grill? Or are they threatened? Uh, no, they're very different. Uh, you know, the old saying, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Yeah. Same thing for women. Um, women love guys who can cook. And I'm not just talking grilling. I mean, guys who can cook, you know, come over and he'll whip you up a bowl of pasta whole. Yeah, women love that. Um, but men don't want women touching their grills. I'm uh, glad just, you're yeah. honest. I, I, I'm glad you're honest. I, I don't like that this is out there, but it's true. There is a great misogyny when it comes to grilling. That's Get away from my barbecue, they say. Don't dare touch it. <laughs> yeah, if, even weird. if they're no good at it. And here I'm going to tell you something from a woman, and maybe you could use this, and maybe you could deal with it. There are men out there who think they're way better at barbecuing than they are. They're oh, a they big disappointment the on the barbecue, oh. meat Ed. <laughs> and they think because they're men, they can barbecue. And uh, I got to tell it, you, they're letting us down. It's not, it's not genetic. It <laughs> takes a little practice. There are these techniques, these concepts, the skills. We teach them on AmazingRibs.com, my website. Um, all the techniques, the concepts. Uh, for example, the best tip I can give anybody who's just getting into barbecue and grilling, go out and buy a really good digital thermometer. You can get one for under $30. Um, they will tell you within two to five seconds. Yeah, they will pro- exactly they will provide the, the answers. But the thing is, i got to tell you, we have to go. However, I know um, there's a lot of men who resist that. They like to think that they're... Uh, they're oh, just yeah, staring oh, yeah. at it, and it's going. That's another right, segment, right, right, right. Meathead. That's um, another visit, Meathead well, Goldwyn. Let's get together again. There's uh, so much we could talk about. You know, it's August, and it's vegetable time, and vegetables. Are vegetables fantastic. are next, Meathead. We'll do vegetables the next time you join we'll talk us. Talk about grilling vegetables. All right. Thank you. I'm glad we found you. Cheers to you. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure. You know, I love Toronto. I come there to visit family. I stay in Koreatown. It's the best city in the in the Western Hemisphere. And now Toronto support. loves you, Meathead. Toronto loves oh, you. I go to that they, big market. What's the name of that huge marketplace, the indoor marketplace? St. Lawrence Market. The Saint I'm Lawrence, getting... And then in Chinatown, the outdoor marketplace <laughs> in Chinatown. Okay. Uh, We're going to have to fade them down, everybody. Edge. Thank you, Meathead. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Meathead Goldwyn, author of the New York Times bestseller, Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue. And a tale of two towns. One's in the United States and the other one is in Canada. They're missing each other. They rely on each other. A pandemic hits and there's relatives and and friends and they're separated and it's not a wall but it's a virus and as we know that border has shut down other than for essential services and now the two towns one in alaska and one in british columbia they want special permission to get together and why shouldn't they hider 
Alaska and Stewart, B.C. They have a lot in common, and they want to touch and get together and create a bubble, the story of our times. We are joined by the mayor of Stewart, British Columbia, Gina McKay. Gina, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. You know, tell us about your two towns here. How close are you? Who works where and who's friends with who and just how intertwined are you? We're extremely close. Um, This town has, you know, we we have a a very uh, close symbiotic relationship with Hyder, Alaska. Hyder has less than 100 people. We have approximately 400 people. We have one road out, and that is on the Canadian side. And, you know, we're right here on the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, Hyder has no other road access but through us. They have no amenities there. They have no grocery store. They have no... uh, fueling stations. They basically have a post office and some restaurants that are, of course, closed because of this pandemic. Um, we have a long history together. We we celebrate international days. We do July 1st over here and we do uh, July 4th over there. And, uh, you know, this, this has been going on for years and years. And we're two towns. We are two countries, but we consider ourselves as one and we'd like to continue being so. How tough was it when that border closed? What kind of hardship came about? Extremely tough because it happened very quickly. Um, even CBSA here at the at, at our border, we have no U.S. border. We just have mm-hmm. Canadian customs. Uh, you know, everybody, it all happened so quickly, as we all know, back in March. Um, we were just learning these things day by day, hour by hour, and we didn't know if they would even be able to come over at all. And as it turned out, they were allowed to come over once per week for a couple of hours to get their essentials. But, you know, we have, at that point, we had, we even had married couples, uh, newlyweds, uh, one uh, Canadian, one American, and, you know, they they were separated, and we had, um, we have some families where the children live over here, the parents live over there, and actually vice versa, and nobody knew when they were going to get to see each other again, and, you know, we, as the Canadian side, who had, you know, slightly more freedom than they did, we, we just said we're going to do whatever we can uh we we will bring you food we will bring you supplies we will bring you whatever you need and and that has happened there's been you know lots of times where they just couldn't get over you know off off, on their off days or however it worked out and you know what We, we we schlepped groceries over there we schlepped fuel we did anything that we needed to do to get them through but you know we're going on over four months now and you know it's definitely taking their toll on them over there And the winter months are coming, and I can imagine that isolation must be looming ahead of you, like a a darkness that you've never seen before, certainly between the two towns. Absolutely. And like... In, in, in our province, in British Columbia, our provincial health officers sort of, you know, told us as, as British Columbians that, you know, travel around your own province. Over there, they just don't have that luxury. And they, they, they are literally stuck there. And it, the mental toll that it is taking on them now, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I shudder to think about what it's going to be like for them come winter. Um, it's it's hard. I mean, we're all hardy stock that live up here in the north, but <laughs> yeah. um, this is taking this 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 is going to take their toll on anybody. So. And even those who who think they're pretty tough, uh, Gina sure. McKay, what can you do? What are you asking for as a mayor? You're it's some kind of a a special arrangement because of this unique circumstance. 
You know, and I, and I really don't even think that it's special. Uh, all mm-hmm. we're asking for is, you know, we've got approximately, like I said, under 100 people who haven't gone anywhere. They are already a part of our bubble. They have come over here for a couple of hours, once a week. They are already a part of us. And that's all we're asking for is just to continue that. Let them come here. Let them, you know, be a part of, you know, our community like they always have been. Uh, we They have amenities there that, that we you know, utilize as well, like a boat launch. We live right mm-hmm. in the Pacific Ocean, and, we, and you know, there's lots of people that haven't even been able to launch their boats and go fishing in four months. You know, we're already stuck at home not being able to do anything. We've got a whole great big ocean out there that we can't even utilize. So it's, it's, it's difficult, and that's, that's all we're asking for. You know, this pandemic has changed a lot of people. Has it changed the people of the two towns? I mean, it sounds like you already appreciate each other, and we could all learn a wonderful lesson from just the closeness that you've described. But has this pandemic brought any other realizations to you and others? Well, I think it I think it should bring the realization and I think from all of us watching this all on a global level about how, you know, all the borders are, are being defined and, and how, you know, we need to stay within our own borders. I think for us it's showing us that this little line that's crossed right here, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we are two different countries, but we're just human beings and, you know, we all need each other and we need them just as much as they need us and I think at this time like Yes, I'm the mayor of a of a town in British Columbia in Canada, but I care about those people that are over there. And I think we all feel like that. And our community supports them and they know that we support them and they know that we're fighting for this with them. And I think it's really helping them to know that, you know, we're here and we have their backs. Well, you certainly told their story today, Gina. It sounds like you're a little bit of their mayor, too, and maybe they've got one that's also helping out Canadians. It is a a lovely story of the bond between Canada and the U.S., and these days, sometimes we forget about it. You've reminded us. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, and good luck to everyone. And I hope before the darkness hits and the fall hits that there is even more freedom between the two towns. Thank you. Gina. Thank you. G- Gina McKay, the mayor of Stewart, British Columbia. And there you go with a, a town, Hyder, Alaska, and sounds how close they are. And she said that border is just a line. And that's how it used to be. So really kind of tugging at the heartstrings there. And the way, of course, so many parts of the border between Canada and the United States, it's not about politics. It's about Neighbors, really. Neighbors are neighbors. It doesn't matter if you're living in another country. All right. Good will to them. I heard the clip of the explosion in Beirut during this newscast 24 hours ago, and I went, whoa. And it hit you inside, and I went somewhere. There was something about that bang. And we'd seen the picture in the morning, and then we saw the cloud and the mushroom cloud. And what did it do to us? I mean, there's something about that visual. And people were making comparisons between nuclear explosions, Hiroshima. And then the president of the United States said, no, it was a bomb and an attack. And we found out the president was not speaking what is being reported right now, that it was improperly stored or forgotten about or neglected ammunition, ammonium nitrate. And there's lots of questions about it. But it has been described as a great, big explosion. 
explosion and a, a national disaster akin to Hiroshima, according to the governor of Beirut. However, my next guest has a, a, a Canadian image for this a true story that happened in 1917 in Halifax. And he says, think about that, not nuclear explosions for a a comparison. Writing about this in Forbes is Kelsey Atherton, who's a defense technology journalist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Kelsey, thank you for being here. My pleasure. You know, when I read your piece, it, it, it talked about the image and there's something about the image of that cloud. And as we followed it on social media and I followed it on Twitter and people were moved by it, they were making those comparisons, the governor of Beirut making that comparison. And it's kind of natural, isn't it, when we've seen it, but we all get geared up and we get to be experts in this. And you were one of the first out of the gate to talk about what those clouds really meant. What did you think, may, may I ask you, when you saw that that picture? Sure. So I think... It's um, perfectly natural to see a mushroom cloud and worry just what the exact nature of the blast is, especially because um, since 1945, um, mushroom clouds have become iconically linked with nuclear um, and atomic explosions um, for everybody. But something that is uh, fascinating, I think, is before um, before everyone knew about atom bombs, the mushroom cloud was associated with all, just any sufficiently large explosion. It was so common that um, after the atomic test in uh, Trinity, at the Trinity test in New Mexico, they tried to pass it off as an ammunition blast to keep it secret. Um, and that produced a mushroom cloud. And I think um, what's weird is that it's flipped, is that now um, people see a mushroom cloud and assume nuclear when really what it just means is the explosion is very big and there was a really big one back in history and you brought it back to life for us uh, with this canadian connection uh, the infamous halifax explosion how does it compare and what can we learn about these bangs and clouds from looking in our history here sure so we'll have to wait for a little bit more analysis to get the scale of it but um halifax was the largest human-caused explosion before the atomic bomb. Um, and it was a um, it was an ammunition ship. An ammunition ship collided with another ship, um, and it just blew up in the port. And then that's devastating. I mean, I think that's what struck me as why my brain immediately upon seeing the footage out of Beirut went to um, the, what I'd learned of Halifax, because it's such a, it's such a tragic accident, um, a kind of mistake that mainly comes from having ammunition stored poorly and handled poorly, and then um, is cataclysmic. How does it affect our coverage of it? How does it affect our perception of it? You know, when we look at this mushroom cloud, we think nuclear, as you said, but then you just explained the, this collision in Halifax with and the giant explosion. Does it affect how we follow the story, how we look at the disaster? Absolutely. I think it's fundamentally important to um think of accidents and attacks somewhat differently. And the immediate effect afterwards for the people on the ground, um, it doesn't, it's not a huge difference. I certainly feel um, 
for the governor of uh, Beirut, who immediately went to the most visceral description he knew mm-hmm. for the devastation he saw. But I think it's very, for, for people who have at least a little bit of a remove, and I certainly have uh, some here in New Mexico, is uh, Hiroshima and um, calls to mind, atomic bombs call to mind attack. And mm-hmm. that requires a sort of different government response, a different posture, a whole different kind of threat to think about than if the thing that happened instead is a massive industrial accident. And that's what we're hearing about this, and I think it's uh, it doesn't make it any easier, but it does change our perception. Let's throw in the mix where we are right now. We had the President of the United States in a news conference saying, yeah, I talked to our top generals, and they say it was a bomb or something or an attack. How did that play into this? I so far have yet to see any reporting um, through any... Uh, open source channels that confirm the theory that it was a yeah, deliberately set explosion? There is none. There is none. But we're, you know, the perception when we hear that word attack, you know, if the president misspoke, he, he may have sent people thinking in a different direction. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's really um, important, especially perhaps now more than ever, to check um, the, against the available evidence. And there is tremendous open source evidence about the existence of a massive stockpile of ammonium nitrate in the exact place where there is now a crater. There is a crater. And what a time to look at it, too. It also changes the context where you look at this disaster and you look at this the just devastation, and that word doesn't even work. It's, it's not strong enough for what we're seeing in Beirut. And to know that they were already fighting this pandemic and hospitals were already stressed, and then this, it really puts this moment under the microscope, doesn't it? It, it absolutely does. Um, and I think it calls to mind, right, if we're, if we're drawing back to the experience of Halifax, Halifax mm-hmm. is a lesson of first um, preventable tragedy and accident. And then the second half of the Halifax story, right, is a tremendous international effort to recover and rebuild and take care. Um, and I very much hope the story in Beirut plays out with the same second half that we saw in Halifax. All right. Thank you for joining us, Kelsey. We appreciate it. And great peace in Forbes. Thank you. Thank you. Kelsey Atherton is a defense technology journalist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And you can read his piece in in Forbes, Thank Halifax, Not Hiroshima, for the Beirut explosion. Um, You know, it just jolted me when we think of that moment in history that took place in Canada. And it is, um, it, it was something. And there was a movie, wasn't it? The Shipping News was about that, I think. And the book, and here we are again, same kind of, same kind of thing. But in our mind, when we see those clouds, it just takes us somewhere. Right in the middle of this pandemic, it started taking people places I don't think they wanted to go. And it wasn't a relief to get back to the fact it was an accident because we also had reporting today that one of the officials who's in charge of the the port has come out and said that he's been sending email after email for years saying this is a threat and a disaster in the making and now look what happens how does he feel he doesn't feel good according to what he's saying i'm arlene bynan filling in for john oakley for august the 5th 2020 weekday afternoons from three to six eastern time turn the dial to 640 and if you're not in the gta you can listen live at 640 toronto.com
Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 